This morning we'll be finding ourselves in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there. Chapter 13, we'll be looking at chapter 13 to 16 this morning. So last week we got to find out that Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is on his final journey to Jerusalem. This is going to be the final journey where he enters Jerusalem for the last time where he would not leave Jerusalem but end up crucified on a cross. At this point in, in time, the religious leaders, they're fed up with Jesus and his, and his ministry and what his teaching. And he's not only put on display their, their stark legalism and their legalistic views, but also their hardness of heart in this last passage that we got to look on when Gunnar got to teach on marriage and divorce that we saw just previous to this passage. And we got to see that Jesus is very much displeased with divorce. You know, I can remember growing up um, as a kid, I think I must have been in third grade, I had a best friend um, that lived just down the street from me. We lived on 10-acre parcels, so we were, became really good friends because we lived in the same neighborhood, but it was still kind of quite a walk to get there. Um, but much like Valley Center, I gotta say. He also had, I think he had 15 acres of horses, so I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to that. I used to help him scoop the horse's uh, stuff up all the time. That was our, our chore. Um, but he became my best friend. And I remember one day he gave me a call and said, I need to come over, and I could tell something was wrong. This was a kid that in our elementary school at the time, he was the most popular kid. He was the, the strong kid always. He was never the one that was made fun of. He was always the one making fun of others, if you will. And yet he came over this time, and I could see his face was red, and he was ready to cry. And he shared with me that his parents had told him that they were getting a divorce. And this was in the third or fourth grade, and I remember how much that impacted me, and I remember how much that impacted him. A man that wasn't moved by anything, a kid that wasn't moved by anything, was so drastically moved by this, and I think this is one of the reasons Jesus drastically hates divorce. It breaks families apart. And a lot of times when we consider divorce, we don't think of the impact it has on our children. And I think there's also probably a correlation now between the, the common practice of divorce in our culture like it was back in Mark chapter 10 where we see these kids that have seen parents get divorced and remarried multiple times. And is there any coincidence that these kids don't want to get married at the same time? That they're waiting longer and longer and longer to get married and have a family of their own into their 30s and even later now. I think there's a, a, a pretty clear correlation between the two. And yet Jesus has a lot to teach us about children, and I think that it's only natural that this passage would come up right after a teaching on divorce where, where he's clearly saying he doesn't like, to, like divorce. He loves marriage, and he loves God honoring marriage, and he holds marriage up at a, high, a pretty high level, I would say. A desirable level, though. And he talks about biblical marriage that's pleasing to God. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the next thing that happens is these, these faithful, God-fearing, God-honoring parents that are there want to bring their kids to Jesus to be blessed by him. And I love this picture because children are so important in the kingdom of God. Well, I believe God has so much to teach us through these four verses today. Um, you're probably going to think, how can you get you know, a whole sermon on four verses? Believe me, I could probably do two. Um, this is some really important stuff. So let's go ahead and read together the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for you to pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. I believe in your word, as as the word of truth says, that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, you are here, you are present, Lord. So, Father, would you open our eyes by the power of your spirit? Would you open our ears to hear what your spirit would have for the church? That we would see your goodness. Would you soften our hearts to receive your instruction, to grow in righteousness and grace and truth? Lord, may we leave this place overwhelmed by your amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I entitled the message this morning, Children in the Kingdom of God. Uh, Many of you will see in your passage, it'll say, Jesus blesses the children. Um, If it's broken up in that section, I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says, let the children come to me in mine. But in others, it'll say, Jesus blesses the little children. This is a story um, that is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptic gospels are called that because they are different from the gospel of John in that they go pretty much throughout the story of Jesus throughout his life, and they share the story of his life. Um, and they're pretty, all three of those Gospels are pretty consistent in what they share. Um, the Gospel of John is a great Gospel and still the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, but he chooses to pick and choose different miracles and look at different miracles and different teachings of Christ throughout his ministry. So all three of the Synoptic Gospels in, in Matthew 19 and Luke 18, we see this exact same story played out um, written from a different perspective a little bit from these two different authors, Mark and Luke, and yet they are very, very similar. Now perhaps you, like me, you've read through the Gospels before. How many of you guys have read through the Gospels before? Yeah. Um, and how many of you have, maybe you remember reading this story? So if you're one that has read this story before and you're also one that is is you know, like I used to be. I don't do it in my, my teaching Bible, but in my home Bible, I underline and highlight all kinds of stuff. Do you? It's very likely in my imagination that this would be four verses that probably don't have any underlining or highlighting in them. And why is that? It's not because you missed something, but it's because this is just a common idea with this passage. It's actually overlooked by many commentators, believe it or not as having little importance in the grand scheme of the Gospel of Mark. And yet, I believe that in these four verses, we actually find some of the most significant teaching of Jesus. And I'll get into that here in a minute. You see, these passages are significant. Although you might have read this and you come to the conclusion, like like many commentators and and I have even in the past, where you read this passage and you just come to the conclusion that, well, I must have childlike faith to enter the kingdom of God and that Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. might sing the old Sunday school song. I won't sing it for you. I don't want you to get it stuck in your head all day. It was stuck in my head this whole week, so... So we, we come to this conclusion that Jesus loves the children, the children need Jesus, and yet we have to come to into the kingdom of God, which the gospel writer Mark's been talking about all throughout his gospel, is the, king, the coming of the kingdom of God and how to be part of the kingdom of God. And we say, okay, now we need to come childlike to the kingdom of God. And that's where we stop. 
And I would say that's an accurate interpretation of this text, but I would also say that that is just a surface level interpretation of a, te- a text that is so deep that there's so much more to it that, that Jesus is trying to teach us. Why? Because I believe that when I look throughout the Bible and I see the consistency in this area of children and Jesus and children of God, how he, how he treats children, specifically infants, I believe that this text alone answers the age-old question of what happens to infants when they die. Now, many of you might be affected by that. It's a, it's a sensitive, it's a, t- it's a tough topic. When I was young, I remember having, I had a young um, a niece that fell into a jacuzzi and died in her infancy. And that broke my heart. I remember I was old enough to understand the weight of it and going to the funeral and seeing all the people dressed in black. This is my first funeral experience and it was for a child, for an infant. And the weightiness behind that, everybody mourned for this child. And yet I believe that this text alone does answer the age-old question that we have, what happens to an infant when they die? And that the grace of God alone saves them. And I believe there's a lot of evidence for this found within the entirety of the scriptures. And it's interesting that this week I was also on a ride along with one of our Escondido's finest. And we had this conversation, actually. We actually talked a little bit about this. And this is before I knew uh, that I would be teaching on this particular passage. Because I thought Gunnar was going to actually teach through this one and leave me with the rich young ruler, the next passage. So I found out on Tuesday. And I was like, okay, well, I had studied for the rich young ruler. But we're going to be talking about children today. And I'm really excited to be doing that. Because I believe that this message is going to be a powerful one where the Spirit does move us. And because it's the topic of children, I believe it's also going to be encouraging to those of us that have been affected by the loss of a child, whether in infancy or in the womb. You see, in our world today, we, we don't necessarily, we, we probably view children about the same as they did back in the, in the day of Mark, where they, they really were viewed kind of outside the spiritual world, outside of the importance of, of salvation, if you will. They were in their own little category, but they were deemed as unimportant because they were, just, they were just children, right? But I believe that God has so much more to say to that. And besides that, from that, we have millions of children around the world, infants. In fact, I, I found research that indicated that 15,000 infants under five years old die every single day around the world collectively. So you can't tell me that this isn't something that affects us as a culture, And this is something that should be addressed. So in this text we have Jesus blessing the little children. Some of your translations may say infants or little children. Um, Some commentators will say that these children could walk. So they were, you know, what what age do you start walking? Three, two, three? Depending depending on how soon you start crawling. Uh, I don't know. I don't have kids yet, so I couldn't tell you from experience. I don't remember when I was that age, so... But we can see that these kids could, could have been potentially walking to Jesus, these infants, because he calls them to come to him. So some commentators say because he calls the children to come to him and they come to him, some of them are walking, but then other commentators will look at this passage and say, but it also says that he enfolded them or held them in his arms, meaning that he's holding infants. I, I, I personally believe that the text, and if you go back into the Greek um, of, of the text and everything and you look at the other two synoptic gospels, I would come to the conclusion that both were there. And do children come to a man that is grumpy? Do they come to someone who's unwelcoming? 
No. You see, Jesus was somebody that consistently throughout the scriptures loved children and children loved him. He loved holding children. If you ask my wife, she would say, I'm afraid of babies. It's true. But I'm afraid of babies. My cousin just had a baby and I'm like, I'm not going to hold it yet. I'll wait till I have my own and then risk it, you know. But Jesus loved them. And I, I strive to be more like him, amen? <laughs> In this text, we have Jesus not only blessing these little children, you know, some of them that are walking, some of them that are infants, he's holding them. We believe that it's also parents, grandparents, it could be aunts and, uncle, aunts and uncles, or even older siblings bringing these children to Jesus at the time. So that's what we have going on, that these children were being held in the tender and caring arms of our Savior at this particular passage. So here's what I want you to walk away with today. One particular thing that I want to be crystal clear in this whole message, that God does not bless those who are cursed, and he does not curse those who are blessed. God does not bless those who are cursed, and he does not curse those who are blessed. That Jesus also only ever pronounces a blessing on those who belong in his kingdom. That Jesus only ever pronounces blessing on those who belong in his kingdom. You see, this, it's unique that Jesus blesses these little children and counts them as part of his kingdom. Because in this passage we have the contrast of these little children that are considered by Jesus to be part of his kingdom, contrasting the legalistic worldview of the religious leaders and the Jewish people of the day. You had the Jewish leaders just in the last text who were so legalistic and hard-hearted that they would just divorce women and remarry because that's what was written about. That's what the rabbis believed. At least one rabbi. The popular one. And then it broke God's heart. And then you have it also contrasted even more starkly with the next passage of this rich young man who said from his youth he had followed the letter of the law perfectly. And yet Jesus says that he is considered outside the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is not his. And he walks away sorrowful. We'll be studying that in depth next week. So it's a stark contrast. You have these little kids that Jesus is saying, these infants, these little kids, these children, are included in the kingdom of God, having done nothing to deserve it. The legalism of the Jews would have said, no, you have to earn your way to heaven by good works. What you do, the works that you do in this life, would indicate whether or not you're going to heaven. That's their teaching. That was the legalism of the day, and this comes in stark contrast to that. Because little children cannot do good works. They cannot earn their way to heaven. They can cry. They can beg for food. That's about it. They are completely dependent on us for their physical care, right? They cannot just decide, I need to feed myself right now. They cannot just decide, I need to clothe myself. I need to clean myself. No, they're completely dependent on us for physical care. Why then would they be considered accountable for their spiritual life if they cannot even care for their physical life? So this particular passage is very important. What Jesus did here was defy the wisdom of man by identifying these people as part of a kingdom who could do nothing to earn it or deserve it. Now that is God's grace, amen? That is only the grace of God 
So this passage is per- perhaps one of the most, in all of the Synoptic Gospels, one of the most probably powerful illustrations that Christ could give us that salvation is by grace. If you're here this morning thinking that you've done something to earn your salvation, that because you said the prayer, because you did this or that, because you go to church every week and that you've done something that somehow gives you favor in God's sight, let me just correct you for a minute because our righteousness is as what to God? Filthy rags. All of our good works, all of our good deeds, God sees them, he's like, yeah, that's, that's great, but it's like a filthy rag to me. It's like the, the rag I use to wipe all the grease off of my car. There is none that do good, no, not one, the scriptures tell us. Salvation is an act of the grace of God alone. And this passage is a strong rebuke to the common self-righteous legalism of their day. So think about this. Babies and little infants are included in the kingdom of God, having nothing to earn it or deserve it. They're also an illustration, though, of those who receive the kingdom of God. So that first interpretation I shared with you, those who receive the kingdom of God being childlike, coming to God, completely dependent on him, completely unworthy, completely humble, having childlike faith. That's how we come into the kingdom of God, amen? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all follow and contrast this story, of course, with the rich young ruler who, again, wasn't included in the kingdom of God. And that's why this is such an important passage. That babies have a place in the kingdom. So you might be wondering, how do we get there from four verses? So let's go ahead and dive through the verses real quick, and let's, let's look at them and see what they have to say for us. Verse 13 says, And they were bringing their children to him that he might touch them. It's very common that this happened to Jesus, that children were brought to Jesus at this time because he was, he was affectionate for the children. He loved the children. We saw, if you guys remember in Mark chapter 9, if you just flip back not too far, it's probably even on the same page, 942, 938 even. He's talking about these little ones. The disciples are talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? And what does he do? He grabs one of these little kids and he holds this little child and then he tells the disciples, He teaches the disciples, and then he even says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be greater for him if a millstone, a great stone, was tied around his neck and he was cast into the sea. You see, this affection that Jesus had for kids is shown throughout, consistently throughout the Gospels. So it's no surprise that these parents bring the kids to him. It was a common practice at the time. You can can imagine this, this great teacher appears in Jerusalem, and he's teaching different than all the other great teachers of, of the day. In fact, he's drawing these crowds of thousands, tens of thousands of people, and he's even feeding some of them. He's healing people and, and doing all of this great work and great teaching of the kingdom of God and talking about salvation. And, and it would only be natural that these God-fearing, God-honoring parents would want to bring them to Jesus for a blessing, right? Why? Because these parents cared about the salvation of their kids. These parents really cared about the future of their children. These parents wanted them to be blessed by God. Imagine how cool would it be to be one of these children that was held in the arms of Jesus to, you know, 15, 20 years later when they're a young adult to be told by their parent, like, yeah, you were held by that man that died on the cross. You were blessed by him. How powerful would that have been? And yet, as I said before, the disciples, somehow, for some reason, they, they didn't like this idea that children were being brought to Jesus because of the legalism of the day because children weren't seen, because you know, the legalism told them that salvation is by works, right? You had to work your way to heaven. You had to do good works to get to heaven. 
And here Jesus is coming in and saying, no, children can enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's this big contrast there. So these disciples have, have been actually affected by their culture of the day. And I believe that we have been affected by the culture of our day too and our, our view of children, our view of salvation. And we need to see it clearly as Jesus teaches. Jesus receives praise from children in, Ma- in Matthew 22, verse 15 and 16, um, right after he's triumphantly entering Jerusalem and then he enters the synagogue. And what happens in, in Matthew 21, 15 to 16, it says this, that the children in the temple were crying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were praising God. And it drove the religious leaders that were there that heard it just nuts. It frustrated them that children were doing this. These children are people that uh, up until now, up until Jesus' teaching on this, had been considered outside of the realm of religious discussion. Why? Because they couldn't do anything to earn their salvation yet. They were just kids. And yet, Jesus receives praise from them in none other than the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus also receives praise from infants in Psalm 8, verses 2. Out of the mouth of babes, God brings forth his praise. Or in some translation, it might say he, he, they tell of his strength. Infants, babies. How cool is that? So while Jesus loves these little kids, he also understood, though, that they were sinful. He didn't have such a high and lofty view of them that he saw them above sin. No. He still, I believe, scripturally saw them as sinful. Now, there are other commentators and stuff that might argue this, and there's different views on the nature of children at birth. I'm not going to get into that. It's too much to go into today. I believe, as I've been taught, to simply teach the Bible simply and make the plain things the main things and leave the plain things as the main Just simply teaching the Bible as I see it. That yes, we're born in sin. Psalm 51, David himself says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. In Adam, all die. What's, it, what, what's the, probably the greatest evidence that I believe that, that children are included in, in our sinful nature, in man's sinful nature? Well, what the penalty of sin is? Death. Children are dying. Children still die. They're still affected by this sin. Though they cannot conceive of sin in their mind at an infant state, though they cannot actively rebel against God as we can, making their own choices, they're still born in a sinful nature. Why? Because it's passed down from generation to generation, starting with Adam and Eve. This sin nature has cursed not only humanity as a whole, generationally, but also the world. We see it all the way around us with coronavirus. We have all this stuff going on in the world that's broken, right? So children are included in that. But this text also, I believe, points us to another really, really important point. Does Jesus love sinners? Yes. Does Jesus love sinners? I've heard so many commentators, so many other Christians try to argue that Jesus doesn't love sinners. Jesus loves sinners. He loves these little children. And then in the passage, right after this, we're going to be studying about the rich young ruler who was in sin. Jesus actually calls out his idolatry because of his possessions. He held that above God, so he still broke a law even though he thought he was accomplishing the law from his youth. And he looks upon this sinful young rich man and he what? He loved him. It's very clear that Jesus loves sinners. And that's an important thing for us to consider. Jesus loves sinners, do we? It's hard <laughs> because we're sinners too. 
So the word children in your text is the, in, in, in this text, at least in the, in the Gospel of Mark, is actually the Greek word uh, paideia. And that's more of a general term, but the, the Gospel of Luke uses the word brephos in the Greek, which would incl- include little infants, little children. So that's where we really get the, the depth of that. And I believe that's where we get pretty much, I believe, anything, any child, probably four, three, four to five, maybe and younger, down to infancy, that were brought to Jesus. So these parents had no doubt heard of Jesus' teaching, saw his great works, and they wanted him to be blessed. They wanted to bring their kids to be blessed by him. So was this a common practice in the Jewish tradition? Yes. Jesus himself, remember Mary and Joseph, after the 40th day, they brought Jesus to the temple. And what happened there? Simeon blessed Jesus. He was actually the very first, Jesus in his infancy, he was the very first person ever to proclaim him as the Messiah. Pretty cool. Jesus was blessed. This was a common practice at the time, especially for parents that care deeply about the salvation of their kids. And I believe in this room we have a lot of parents that care deeply about the salvation of their kids. Amen? They want their children to know God, to become part of his kingdom, to have eternal life. They want their children to grow up, to push the kingdom of God forward, to serve God with their whole lives, to be a blessing to God. What parent wouldn't want that for their child? What parent wouldn't want their child to be wrapped in the arms of of Jesus? But this practice of of laying the hands on the head of a child and blessing them, this was also a common practice. And I would even say, biblically, this is something that we could even practice today, where the father and the mother would bring these children into the synagogue and the elders of the synagogue, because remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't touch anyone because they they didn't want to be defiled. That's the biggest difference between Jesus and the religious leaders at the time is he's touching the sick, he's touching the sinners, he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, he's touching babies, all these things that would consider defilement with these religious leaders. He's touching them. Big difference there. But this practice of laying their hands on the head, they would bring these children into the synagogue and the, the elders in the synagogue would command the fathers to pray like this, that their child would be famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. That was a common prayer for a Jewish father for his kids, a Jewish mother for her kids, that they would be famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. So fathers would lay their hands and they'd pray this prayer with the elders of the synagogue, all in agreement, praying that these kids, ultimately that God would do anything that he needed to do to drive these kids to a saving knowledge of Christ that God would do anything necessary in these kids' lives to drive them to him, to trust in God. I think that's a pretty common, that should be a prayer we pray for our kids, amen? That, that God would do anything necessary in the lives of our children to drive them to, to a saving knowledge of God. But the disciples rebuked the parents when they brought these kids to be blessed. And this is a, a strong word, rebuke. This is like these disciples were driving them away. They were enraged that these parents would try to bring these kids to Jesus, actually. It's a very strong word, and Jesus' response is just as strong. Jesus was indignant to the disciples. Jesus, another word for that would be Jesus was angry. Okay, when you have an angry Jesus in the Bible, you better pay attention to when he's angry. You have an angry Jesus. He's indignant and says to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The disciples are learning a lesson here. Jesus got angry or irate at these disciples. 
he commands the children, the, the parents, and, and those who are bringing the children to stop leaving and to come and bring the children to him that he might bless them. I pray that we would never hinder anyone from coming to God. There's a lesson to be learned there. Jesus is saying, if children can come to me, anyone can come to me. If children can come to me and I can hold children, I will spend time with anyone. Are we hindering anyone in our lives from coming to Christ? I hope not. Psalm 27, or 127, verse 3, states that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And Mark 9, of course, 42, as I said earlier, talks about the penalty of, of Jesus saying, if you cause a little one to sin, it'd be better for you just to be thrown into the sea and, and drowned than to cause a little one that knows Jesus to sin. Jesus loves children. He includes infants. He includes baby categorically as a part of the kingdom. And this is clearly seen in verse 14 when he's saying, such as these. You can't tell me that Jesus is sitting there with children around him and teaching his disciples at the same time and the such as these is only referring to us men and women who are old enough to understand that this is meaning he's trying to refer to childlike faith. No. That's a shallow view of this text. He's talking about these kids, but he's talking about the specific kids in this group. No, he's saying, such as these, these infants, the, the category of infancy. They're saved. They belong in the kingdom of God. This is where God cares. You know, their, their souls are under God's special care, if you will. So here's what I'm saying. Babies, and I do believe that there's a point at time when infants, they grow up and they reach an age where they are accountable before God. This is a controversial thing in the church, I understand. I'm not going to throw out an age because I believe that this is a very unique thing to each and every individual, each and every child. And yet, we all can remember a time in our lives where we started to think about what was good and what was evil, right? Or we started to think about what would be the punishment if I did this versus if I didn't. I can remember, I, I remember having those, those thoughts in my head when I was an, a, a youth. And I would start to weigh the, the cost-benefit, if you will, of disobe- disobedience. There's a point in time where all children become ultimately accountable to God. And then they have to put their faith and trust in Him. It's still by grace alone that they're saved, but they have to do that. Does this mean that infants and babies are not sinners? No, they're sinners. From birth, I believe that they are sinners. And yet, I think that Jesus holds them in a special category, knowing that their nature is sinful, and yet he saves them. So, Deuteronomy one thirty nine says this. It talks about little children, infants who have no knowledge of good or evil. Um, it talks about no one understood that they don't understand right and wrong, and thus, you know, Deuteronomy one thirty nine is a very clear example that they exist in in their own unique category. Jeremiah nineteen four talks about pagans offering their babies to be burnt at the at basically at, at an altar for this false god Molech. Jeremiah nineteen four, these babies being burnt as an offering. It's, it's an awful picture. In fact, they would actually. Historically, we could read through, and they actually would beat drums to drown out the cries of these babies because that, that was their worship, essentially. It was, it's awful. And yet, these babies are referred to 
by God as the blood of the innocent. It's interesting, isn't it? These are babies being burnt by pagan parents. Infants. And then Jesus is saying this is the blood of the innocent. They could not choose right and wrong yet. They had not developed that stage where they could pick. They did not know their right hand from their left yet. They were the blood of the innocent. Another case, and this one might be interesting to you guys, in Jonah chapter 4, if you remember the story of Jonah, God sends Jonah to this place called Nineveh. Nineveh is a very sinful city. And God says, I want you to go and you command them to repent or I'm going to destroy them. Jonah doesn't want to do this because God, he just wants God to destroy them. He doesn't want them to have the opportunity to repent. He knows how wicked they are. He tries to run. He gets caught up in the belly of a whale for three days, three nights, and then spit back up on the sea. And God says, now go. He goes. And what happens? God brings a great revival in Nineveh. The people repent. There's a great revival. And then, then you have Jonah sitting on this, this hillside or this cliff, if you will, looking over the city of Nineveh. And he's just in this terrible, sorry state where he's like, why can't these people just be destroyed? They deserved it. And, and God has this intense dialogue with him with this sad prophet, and he says this, why would I destroy a city where 120,000 who do not, where there are 120,000 who do not know their left from their right? What is God referring to there, you think? Who doesn't know their left from their right? Infants, babies. 120,000, God has mercy on children. Ezekiel 16 is another one that's good. talks about, again, babies being killed and sacrificed to Moloch. And God actually says this time, you're slaughtering my children. It's interesting. He actually uses the term my children. You're slaughtering. So infants, I would say, again, this just is more proof that infants are considered in this special category, as you will. It doesn't matter the faith of their parents. It doesn't, and this is, this is good news, I believe, because it means that infants around the world, whether it's Whatever religion is raising them, whatever practice of the day is raising them, if they die in infancy, they are saved by God. That's good news, amen? But perhaps my, my favorite is in Second Samuel chapter 12. And we all know who King David is. The man after God's own heart. And yet, what did he do? He sinned with this woman Bathsheba. Not only sinned an adulterous affair with her, but then he gets her pregnant and has to murder her husband to cover up the whole ordeal because she's pregnant. She has the child and God afflicts this child with an illness in infancy. David is mourning and fasting and praying and he's throwing ash and everything on his head. He's doing everything he can to plead with God that God might heal this infant, his, his son. And there comes a point in time where this infant dies. And all the advisors to King David are saying, whoa, whoa, we saw his reaction when the child was sick and dying. We saw how, how miserable he was. What is he going to do? How is he going to react when we tell him the child is dead? We better not tell him. And yet they had to tell him because the child was dead. So they go and tell him, and what does David do? David gets up, he cleans up, he puts on new clothes, and he stops weeping. It's a really weird response from a dad. But David's commentary on that. David says this profound statement to them, and I believe it's worth us reading in in 2 Samuel 12. He says, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Referring to his dead infant child, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. That's a powerful statement of faith. Amen? 
Jesus is clearly saying that this, this son is, is saved in the arms of a gracious God. Contrast that, again, to David, and years later where he has his adult son Absalom. And what does Absalom do? Absalom wants the kingdom for himself, so he basically splits the kingdom and wars against David and kicks David out, and Absalom ends up you know, in sin, and he dies. And David's response to the death of his son Absalom, who was a wicked, sinful son, like he was awful, was he was mourning and weeping and oh Absalom for almost three chapters, just mourning and weeping for the son. Why? Because David understood that this son had consciously made the decision to rebel against God. He knew that he would not be seeing his son again. The infant, yes, he would be seeing that infant again. But Absalom, he wouldn't be seeing. So babies are saved by God there. I believe they're in heaven, biblically. We can, we can make that argument. Jesus adds that not only are children in the kingdom of God, but those who enter it must come like a child. Kingdom citizenship is for both children and those who come like a child. We must enter the, chi- the kingdom with childlike faith. So now we move on to this next, this next part here. It's a faith that trusts God as a child would trust his father or mother. Amen? What does that mean? Well, for those of you who have little kids, if you tell them that something is what it is, they believe you, right? If you handed a little infant uh, an apple and you said it was an orange, they would believe you for a while. Childlike faith in their parents. You see, so many times God tells us, he instructs us different things in the scriptures, and we want to we push back and say, I don't believe that you could really teach that, Jesus. I don't believe that you could really believe that, Jesus. And and we need to come into the kingdom with childlike faith, looking to God and saying, God, you, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I trust you. I humbly come to you. I have done nothing to earn the salvation that you've given me. I have done nothing to deserve it, you know. And yet, I find that sometimes, and I'll, I'll be closing with this, that we, especially those who are believers, sometimes hold salvation as this really high and lofty thing that's really hard to attain. And it's almost always people that are already saved that hold this view that, it's, that you have to not only say the prayer, you've got to read your Bible every day, you've got to do all this stuff to be saved. It's this really high and lofty view of salvation. When, when Jesus is here and he's saying, no, children are receiving this. Out of the mouths of babe, they speak forth my praise. These are little kids that have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus in the temple when they're seeing Hosanna to the son of David. These are little children that can understand and wrap their minds around the grace of God that is sufficient enough to save them. That's amazing, amen? If children can understand salvation, then let us not hold salvation up as this this thing that is so hard to be achieved because it's by grace alone that it's received. If children can understand the grace of God, I believe anyone can. I mean, look at the, another example, just be the sinner on the cross next to Christ. It's by grace alone that, that Jesus looks over at this man and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This man did not live a life of achievement. It was by simple grace alone that this man, who was guilty of all the sins that he had been put on the cross for, looked at Jesus and just said, remember me, Jesus. It's as simple as that. Sometimes we make it so complicated for young ones to come to the, to come to the kingdom, Amen. Sometimes we make it so complicated for our friends to come to the kingdom when it's just, no, believe in Jesus. 
Look to him and say, Lord, I need your salvation. That is, that's as simple as that. And when we start to believe in Christ, we start to grow in righteousness. We start to be transformed into his image more and more, the more we look to him. You see, it's a process, though. For infants, when they start, start to look at Jesus, they'll, they'll start to look and, and pick up certain characteristics. How many of you, when you were young, had a, a child, you know, somebody that you really admired as a child? Like, as a child, you looked up to someone, whether it was uh, John Wayne. It could have been anyone. But what did you do if you had this person that you greatly admired as a kid? You started to what? Walk like them. Started to talk like them with the accent that they had even. You started to act like them with your, your physical motions. And, and, and you started to encompass their persona, if you will. I believe the same thing is true when we just simply keep our eyes on Christ. When we simply keep our eyes on Christ, that's all it is. Salvation is us keeping our eyes on the one who brings, gives us that, that grace that is sufficient enough to save us from our sins and to reconcile us to God. We need to keep our eyes on Christ and come to him like a child. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Are you ready like a child to put your life into the arms of a loving God? See, we have a responsibility to lead people to Christ, not to hinder them. To lead our children to Christ, not to hold them back. To pray blessing for them that they would come to a saving knowledge of, the, of, of Jesus Christ when they are old enough. That's the importance of children in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, you are the solid rock on which we stand. Lord, I thank you for the consistency we can find regarding your love for children in the Gospels, Lord, and your love for children in, in all of the Bibles and all the Scriptures, Lord. It is consistent. Lord, that we can have faith, Lord, that if, if there is an infant that we know has perished, Lord, that he's being held, he and she, they're being held in your arms, Lord that we can hold to that faith. Lord, and that if we've been personally affected by this, that we will see our lost kids again, that we will come to them, Lord. They won't come to us, but we will come to them because we trust in you. Father, would you continue to teach us and instruct us this week in righteousness? Lord, may we receive your kingdom and the grace that you offer freely. Lord, having done nothing to earn it, none of us have done anything to earn it, Lord. And we've surely done nothing to deserve it, Lord. We've done everything impossible not to deserve it even. And yet your grace, Lord, for us is so king. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the grace that you've given us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to make not only disciples of all the nations, but disciples of our children, leading others to a childlike faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.